Well, good morning, church. And Merry Christmas. We can start saying it. Uh, we had an awesome visitation in the first service, and it wasn't Jesus or anything like that, though we would have really liked that. Um, but we had Diane Bernier with us in the first service. Isn't that encouraging? You know, she's moving along, she's healing, and I, I just marveled at the reality that really you can only get moments like that by being a part of a local church. You know, someone that you've grown to love is part of your family in Christ, and she's obviously gone through a crisis. God's brought her through it, and we got to celebrate her presence this morning. That was really cool. We're going to kick off a series I'm calling Please to Dwell. This is going to be in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And the, the series is really, uh, the title of this series really comes from the theology expressed in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You might remember these words from the song, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. As man, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Now, have you ever considered how theologically loaded all of that language is? I mean, we're singing about a trinity. We're singing about the incarnation, like Pastor James just shared, God made flesh. Two very theolog theologically loaded concepts. And you don't have to wait for family Christmas dinner for things to get a little awkward around Christmas time. That's all I'm trying to say. I want to take you back into some of the controversy that came around these concepts, even in Jesus' own time. You see, we go back to John chapter 5, and I'm going to make a little comparison here, and I just want to ask that you don't take the comparison any further than I intend. It's a very narrow comparison, okay? I'm just saying this. Jesus was like Elon Musk. Now, how so? Well, some people loved him. Other people hated him. Everyone had an opinion. I see, if Jesus was capable of tweeting back in the first century, his tweets would have made the news headlines on a weekly basis, just like Elon Musk's does. Uh, in John chapter 5, for example, there's a highly controversial situation. It gets very tense. You could cut the tension with a knife. Jesus is confronted with a man who needs healed. It is the Sabbath day. Very political. So what does he do? Everyone's asking the question, what's he going to do? Well, of course, he heals the guy, and then he fires off this tweet. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now, that is a lot more awkward of a statement than Uncle Bill talking politics at the family dinner table. You see, the Jewish leadership took it that way. In verse 18 of John 5, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. They didn't want to just get him banned from Twitter. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. You see why they reacted so violently? Now, if you go back into the Old Testament, there were certainly 
people who were actually referred to as sons of God. And even King David himself referred to God as his father. But they were always speaking in the figurative sense. They, they would say something like that to say, this person has a special kind of relationship with God. But Jesus in this text is claiming an altogether different sort of sonship. He's saying in this text that I'm actually the son of God. So you can think of it like this. He's saying that me and the father, we're of the same kind. Or if you think of it in terms of DNA, that we share the same DNA together. These leaders are not misinterpreting his words. So I think we could see why that would be highly controversial for him to make a statement like that. This Christmas season, I want to unpack the question does Jesus have the right to make that claim? That actually turns out to be the most important question you can ask at Christmas. Not what am I going to eat at Christmas dinner, turkey, ham, or beef. Not what am I going to have sitting under the Christmas tree. The most important question, John understood this, is Jesus the Son of God? And so as he tells the Christmas story, he doesn't start the story where Matthew and Luke begin it. They begin with angelic visitations, quaking shepherds, virgin birth. John goes back before that. In fact, he goes way back before that. Listen to what he says in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, I get it. That doesn't sound very Christmassy. It doesn't bring the nostalgic feelings of the angelic visitations or the major scene. But Timothy Keller really said something that helps shape all of this in our minds for us. He said that Christmas is frankly doctrinal. It's frankly doctrinal. Now, that word doctrinal, it can carry some negative commentations today. People think of doctrinal as being closed-minded, rigid, overly narrow, and then certainly there is an extreme form of that. We have two words to describe that, dogmatic or doctrinaire, where someone is being those things. And of course, let's acknowledge this morning that that's bad. It's bad to not listen to people. It's bad to be haughty or feel superior over people because of what you believe. It's bad to not be open-minded to rational argument. But you can also swing on the other side of the spectrum, and that's where most people find themselves today. They avoid acknowledging that they're doctrinal because they don't want to be called doctrinaire or dogmatic. R.C. Sproul made a very good point. He said, everyone is a theologian. Everyone. That means you are, that means I am, that means the people that you're rubbing shoulders with day in and day out, they're all theologians, and that's because everyone makes assumptions about God and eternity and human nature and moral truth. So they're doctrinal, but they're not 
frankly doctrinal. Christmas, on the other hand, is frankly doctrinal. Frankly, meaning that it doesn't make any apologies for being doctrinal. It's forthright about its doctrine. And doctrinal meaning it's making truth claims about God. We're singing about the invisible becoming visible. We're talking about a spiritual being becoming an enfleshed being. Every single Sunday during Christmas, as you sing Christmas carols or as you play them on the radio, you're entering into the same tension that Jesus did in John chapter 5. You're saying that God became flesh. Now, does that mean that we're starting to split some theological hairs? Does it matter if Jesus was God or not? Well, I want to suggest this morning that the nature of Jesus matters very much in your life. I'll give you one example of this. We'll talk about it more when we look at John chapter 1, verse 14. But if Jesus is God and Jesus took on flesh, that means that God has skin in the game. If Jesus is not God, then you can think of it like this. Well, God kind of delegated salvation down the angelic ranks. He didn't come to you personally. But if Jesus is God, it's like the cosmic CEO, the cosmic king, if you will, or president. Well, he actually came amongst us to bring salvation to us. That's a big difference when you think about it. John understood this, and that's why John talks about this concept, the word. Now let's ask an intelligent question. What in the world is the word? Now the Greek word that we're translating word is the word logos. And well, that's not necessarily a term that we're very familiar with today. In Jesus' culture, in John's time, this word was like a household kind of word. Uh, they talked about the word in ancient Assyria, in Babylon. They had a concept of the word in Grecian culture and Jewish culture. You could think of it like this. Just like people today in every culture know that Coca-Cola is a brown fizzy drink, People in Jesus' time, in John's time, in every culture, knew that the word had something to say about God. What does that tell you about God? Well, every time we come up to our missions conference, I'm trying to remind you in that conference that God is a missionary. God, think about it. He embedded a word in all of these cultures that people could relate to outside of Israel so that they could be acquainted with Jesus. It must mean that God must care about people. It must mean that God must care about you. It must mean that God's willing to go to great lengths in order for you and I to get into relationship with him. So this word, John talks about it, and he tells us three things about this word. The first thing he talks about is that the word is beyond all time. In the beginning was the word. Your mind's meant to immediately go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, grammatically speaking, we could translate John 1, 1 like this. In the beginning, the word was already in existence. Now, that's a different way of opening up a story, isn't it? 
I mean, most of our stories that we open up, they begin with some sense of once upon a time. Matthew does that, Mark does that, Luke does that. And that's because for you to describe something that's happened, you usually need to start with a beginning. But John, he doesn't start with that sense. He starts with this sense, once before time, before anything came into existence, was the word. Christmas is doctrinal. When we talk about Jesus, we can't say things like, well, there was once a time when Jesus was not. That wouldn't be doctrinally true. Now, yeah, you can kind of get into the space where you're like, well, technically you can't say that Jesus is eternal, and you can't say Jesus is eternal in the same sense that you can't say Columbus discovered America, right? Because it wasn't called America when Columbus discovered this landmass that we live on. No, it wasn't called America until Americo Vespucci, the Italian merchant, realized through the flora and fauna that this was something different that people hadn't discovered in the Western world yet. So yes, we can't say that Jesus was always, the Son of God was always called Jesus throughout eternity. That wasn't until he was born into the world. But beyond that, we can say that the Son of God always existed. There was never a time when he was not. And this turned out to be one of the great controversies in church history. We're going back to the fourth century. There's a a priest from Alexandria in Egypt named Arius, and he begins to teach that Jesus was the first created being in all of existence. So he's the greatest of all God's creatures, and he's responsible for all of the immediate creation following that. He says that Jesus has a beginning. Well, that sends shockwaves through the Christian world. In fact, they call a council in AD 325 called the Council of Nicaea, and in that council, they refute Arius. This is wrong. This isn't biblical. And yet, that idea in that time is taking great market share amongst the ideas of Christian thought. It becomes a predominant view. That's until Athanasius rises up shortly in Alexandria. And he begins to make this argument. He begins to say, listen, if you say that Jesus is not God, you are losing the essence of all of Christianity. You are losing the essence of salvation itself. Why would he argue this? Well, he says this. He says that if Jesus is not fully man, then you can't have him dying on the cross for your sins. And if Jesus is not fully God, well, then he doesn't have the power or the authority to do anything about that. He can't make atonement for you. Athanasius said this, those who maintain there was a time when the son was not rob God of his word like plunderers. Now that's pretty frank. And it's doctrinal, because like Keller says, Christmas is, frankly, doctrinal. So John's telling us a lot, isn't it? The word was before time. 
he moves into another point, another argument. He tells us that the word is distinct from God. He says the word was with God. Is your brain starting to hurt yet? Because mine is. I start looking at this and I'm like, how can someone or something be with God before time begins? I mean, what are we talking about here? Isn't that the arena where God himself dwells and no one shares with God? And the answer, of course, is yes. And John's going to explain that in the next clause. But for now, we just need to simply notice that God the Father cannot be simply equated with Jesus the Son. You can't say that both are the same person. And when it comes to our understanding of the Trinity, sometimes we confuse the persons of the Trinity. We make them equivalents. And maybe you've heard someone pray like this before. They pray, Father, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Now, I want to say that that's an honest mistake. I don't think there's anything, you know, intentional about that. I'm sure I probably prayed like that when I was a younger believer, but that's not a doctrinally sound statement, is it? Because the Father didn't die on the cross. The Son of God died on the cross, and if we're going to be truthful with the Trinity, we can never equate one person of the Trinity with another person of the Trinity. It's very theologically sound to say that the Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. Each person within the Trinity must be treated distinctly. Now, another thing I like about this clause is one John scholar notes that we get the first hint that this word that John is talking about in the text is a person from the clause. The scholar says this, that the Greek preposition translated with creates the sense with the language that the word was face to face with God. Or perhaps better, the word was in close company with God when we look at John 1.18 next week, we're going to talk about the intimacy and closeness of the Father and the Son's relationship. But before we get to that, I want to just survey a couple of texts in John where Jesus talks about his relationship with the Father before he was born. Look first at John 6.46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. John 16, 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. John 17, 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I mean, that's incredible. Jesus the Son of God is recollecting his close relationship with the Father before he was ever born. That must mean something. That must matter. That must have implications. Let me tell you the direct implication I think there is in this. No one can tell you what God is like, what God's love, what God's heart, what God's mind is like, as Jesus can. Why? 
Well, if you want to get to know someone, really get to know someone, and you don't get to have them in your presence, have a conversation with them, what's the second best way to do that? Well, it's not to go up to someone that casually knows the person or knows them at a distance. You want to go to a person that spends lots and lots and lots of time with that person. In fact, someone who's around them even when they're letting their hair down, so to speak. Christmas is doctrinal. We come to the realization that if Jesus, if there was never a time when the word was not with God, then Jesus knows all there is to know about God. Which also means that when people say, oh, you know, all the religions are saying the same thing, we can say, well, that's actually not a true statement. That's a contradiction. Why? Because any religious claim that denies something Jesus said or isn't in line with what Jesus said must be patently false if Jesus is God the Son who existed in eternity with the Father. So as we're seeing from this text, we're learning a lot about this word. He's existed before time. He's distinct from God. And we're going to see one more truth about the word. The word is one with God. Now, normally speaking, when I unpack verses with you, I don't necessarily put the Greek constructions on the screen. I'm going to do that this morning. I'm going to put it in the English so that you can kind of see what it feels like. I don't like to do this normally because sometimes grammatical arguments can feel pedantic, let's just be on honest, but, 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 sometimes grammar makes all the difference in the world. It's how you unpack the meaning of the text. So let's take a look at it, put your thinking caps on, hang with me. In the beginning was the logos, the word, and the logos was with the God, and God was the logos. Now, in English grammar, we don't normally put the definite article, the, in front of God. It makes the grammar sound awkward, doesn't it? If you're a, a true English speaker, you'd never say something like this. You'd never say, I believe in the God. You just wouldn't say that. In the Greek, however, they're using the definite article to distinguish in the text that the God is not simply any old God, like lowercase g, God, or gods, but the God is the God that Jesus is calling the Father. He's the real God, the actual God. And you look there at the clause, it says the Logos was with the God. He was with that God. Now notice the next clause. Do you see something different with the next clause, the Logos was with the God, and God was the Logos. What's missing? The definite article. That's weird. Now, why wouldn't John say the God was the Logos? Well, see, the the definite article is actually intended to distinguish between the God and the Logos. If John had written the God was the Logos, he would be saying that the God and the Logos are the same person. And that wouldn't make any sense because just the clause before he said the God 
or the logos was with the God. So there are two distinct beings or persons here, not beings. He's continuing that distinctiveness while powerfully saying that they share in the same nature. So again, we're coming back to this idea that Jesus is not the same person as the God, the Father, but they both share in the same nature. So you have to think about DNA here. They're of the same kind. So here are a couple of English translations that help capture this. This is the NET. The word was fully God. The CEV, the word was with God and was truly God. The NEB paraphrase, what God was the word was. Now here's what's incredible in John chapter one, verse one. In one verse, we have almost the full-blown expression of the doctrine of the Trinity. We have God the Father, God the Son. What are we missing? The Holy Spirit. So right in one verse, we can already extrapolate this doctrine of the Trinity. Now, I want to give you a couple of thoughts when it comes to the Trinity. These will help ground you. These will help guide you when you think about it. The first thought is this, that the Trinity is a mystery. Be comfortable with mystery. You see, mystery just simply means that this is beyond my ability to contain within the human imagination. If I can contain God within the human imagination, well, then he must not be that big of a God. But if he is bigger than my imagination, then he must be a really big God. Secondly, any of the analogies or word pictures that we try to put together to explain the Trinity they fall far short of actually describing what the Trinity is. For example, you may have heard someone talk about the Trinity being like three phases of water. So you have, you know, the gas phase, the liquid phase, the solid phase, doesn't quite cut it. Or they talk about the Trinity being like an egg. So you have the egg shell and the egg yolk and the egg white, again, doesn't quite cut it. Or the Trinity being like the sun, where you have the sun's mass and the sun's light and the sun's heat, doesn't quite cut it. So the best way to think about the Trinity is actually to just express the principles about the Trinity that we can bring out from the scriptures. I like what Wayne Grudem says about it. He gives us just three truth statements to hold together in tension. First, he says, God is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Second, each person is fully God. So there's no lesser God within the Trinity. They're all equal. Third, there is one God. So that's that idea of being. There's one being, one God, not three gods working together. If it's three gods working together, you have tritheism, not monotheism. Now, some people look at those statements and they say that's a logical contradiction, but it's not. A contradiction is to say that something is and is not at the same time. That's not what we're saying here. This is what you call a paradox. A paradox is where two things don't seem like they should work together, but in reality, they do. And why do these things work together? Well, because God is a lot, lot, lot bigger than we are. That's why. You see, Christmas is frankly 
doctrinal. I want to come back to John chapter 5, get back into the tension again of that story as we conclude. Now, as you go back in, remember, Jesus has claimed to be the actual son of God, and the Jewish leadership says that he deserves to die. You would think in a moment like that, that he would kind of back off from the situation if they become that violent towards what he's saying. But instead, he leans in. He starts firing off more tweets. He actually claims the rights that ancient Jews believed that were reserved for God alone, namely the right to create and the right to judge. Listen to some of these statements and claims that he makes. One claim, whatever the father does, the son does likewise. That tweet goes viral instantly. Then he says this, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. That tweet goes viral. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. And I think that that one broke Twitter, if you will. You've probably heard people make the simple statement, simplistic, if you will, that Jesus never claimed to be God. He never claimed it. But that's just not true. Sure, maybe he never came out and like had a sign hanging over his head and played with a loud band behind him, I am God, I am God, I am God. He may not have approached it that way, but he claims that he's God all throughout the Gospels. People fall down and worship him. He doesn't correct them. He makes truth claims about himself that are analogous with the rights and the powers of God. He does miracles that only God can do. Now, you might ask yourself, well, why wouldn't he just come out and say it? Doesn't that make better sense? I'm not sure it does. What if I say right now, hey, guys, I'm God. Well, what do you think about that? You think that guy's lost it. So Jesus chose to reveal his glory. He reveals his glory with truth claims and miracles so that you and I might come to a sound decision of faith. He shows us that he's God because he does the things that only God can do, and he claims the authority that only God can claim. Even as you go into the historical record, no one, no document really denies that Jesus ever did not do the miracles that the gospel accounts claim. You would think that they would, wouldn't you? Instead, they throw out pejoratives at him. They say, oh, he was a sorcerer or something like that. But never is there a time as Mark's writing and Matthew's writing and Luke's writing about all of these miraculous claims of Jesus that someone comes along and says, I'm a fact checker, I was there, didn't happen that way. We don't have that. What do you think that means? What do you think John's trying to tell us about Jesus as he discloses these things to us? Well, the most important thing John's trying to tell us is just like Christmas is frankly doctrinal, so is eternity. Turns out that if Jesus is God the Son, 
we have to take everything he says very seriously. Listen to what he says about eternity in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Do you want to spend eternity with God? Well, Jesus says it involves a faith decision. You must place your faith in him. And I want to tell you this this morning. Believing in Jesus is not narrow-minded. It is, frankly, doctrinal. It's coming to the conviction that Jesus is God the Son. It's coming to the conviction that Jesus died on the cross in your place. He took on flesh. He laid down his life so that you might be saved. It is taking on the conviction that when Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that he meant it. And there aren't other ways, truths, and lives to get to eternity. Have you come to that faith decision? Christmas is frankly doctrinal. That's how we get to the core of Christmas. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment and just give God your attention. And if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, if you haven't invited him into your life to be your savior, I just want to lead you through a simple prayer between you and him or you can invite him to be your savior by faith. Pray with me in your heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the only savior and the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want you to come into my life at this moment. As best as I know how, I turn my life over to your care and your control. Amen.